So let's go on now. I'm looking for, for questions in which he will not come out first. Now, remember, I, was, I did this search last, lasting about 20 years. So there would have been many other questions that I'm not even presenting to you. That I went through many times, I hit the blank wall because it was not leading me anywhere. But I'm giving you a gist of the way I took a step-by-step -step, uh, approach and carried on in this very vital search, which to me was extremely important, personally. So here's, the, uh, there are three questions. We won't go through all three. We'll just quickly go through at least two. Number one, what's your birth and parentage? In Hindu, there were multiple authors. There were no specific founder. All the authors were revered and individuals born to honorable parents. In Buddhism, like I already mentioned, his father was Sudhodana, a king, and his mother Maya, a queen. And he was born in a Lumbini grove, a delightful grove with trees of every kind. And he was at, you know, welcomed into the kingdom as the heir apparent. Tremendous sign, time of rejoicing. In Hinduism, a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi, bore a son, and she saw that he was a beautiful child, and he became Pharaoh's daughter's son. The tribe of Levi was not the biggest. But it was just about later on, it became just about the most important because the tribe of Levi was in charge of their central, most prized possession, the tabernacle. So Moses was born into that kind of a tribe. Same thing with Islam. He was a posthumous son of Abdullah, his mother Amina of the tribe of Quraysh, the son of Hashim. The clan, the tribe of Quraysh was not the biggest, it was not the most popular, not even the most powerful, but it was the most important because the tribe of Quraysh was in charge of the Kaaba, the place where today every Muslim wants to go as pilgrimage to Mecca. When you circumambulate the Kaaba, you can now call yourself a Hajj. That's what the five pillars of the Islamic faith. You become a Hajj. You've been on a Hajj. What's a Hajj? Pilgrimage. Kaaba, that is the tribe that Muhammad belonged to. When he came to Christianity, after his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. You know, in our liberal societies today, that's not much. Who cares? But in first century, ultra-conservative Palestine, that was not acceptable. He is the only founder who was conceived out of wedlock. It dogged all his days, way up into the ministry days. When he went to the king, to the, to the temple, they said, you, you want to teach ethics and morals? We were not born of fornication like you. How do I hear? There was nothing great about this birth, my friend. There was nothing. He was born, and if you look at the genealogy in the Jewish line, when they come to so-and-so, they got so-and-so, son of so-and-so, when they come to Joseph, after Joseph, they don't even mention his name in one of the genealogies. You know what they say? So-and-so, son of a bastard son of an adulteress. That's 
That's the genealogy. Whether you like it or not, last of all the founders. What a start to life. And he is supposed to found a religious movement. I don't know how he overcame that horrible stain. Because the horrible stain was not only on the family, it was on him. Not only that, at his birthday, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Put him in a manger. Very romantic word, you know, when you send out your cards. Manger. All deodorized and sanitized. Manger. It was not like that at all. It was dirty and stinking. The bugs and the fleas and the mosquitoes bit him. He cried. He was like any other baby. Don't put a halo around his head. He was the worst of all the founders. That beginning was the worst. Do you know what a swaddling cloth is? It is a rough cloth. That cloth that you use for wiping the table, not for putting on a, as a curtain. No, that one you hang as a curtain. If you went on a, on a journey and you unloaded your backpack and you want to lie down, you put swaddling clothes at the bottom on the ground. Then you put your mattress on top and then sleep. And swaddling clothes had one more place of use. It was grave clothes. When people die, you wrap them in swaddling bands and bury them. So this guy who people call the Prince of Life, on his first day on earth, was wrapped in grave clothes. The worst start in life. Length of the ministry? Hindus, many generations. Buddhism, he's here. Gautama Buddha worked for 45 years until his death. Judaism, Moses led the children of Israel for 40 years. Islam, Muhammad led the led the Muslims for 23 years before he died. When it came to Christianity, three and a half years. Suddenly a big difference. Hey, how long does it take for you to make a statement to the whole world? Look at how long they took. 45, 40 years, 23 years. This man, three and a half years. And naturally, you would ask the question, why just three and a half years? Some kind of disease got him or what? No. His was three and a half years, but he because he was booted out and put to death. Every other founder had a full illustrious life. They could look back and say, Wow, I brought a message, and the people have accepted it. I have changed this village and that village. I've changed the landscape with my message. And this man booted out and killed. The worst start in life, the shortest period of ministry because of the worst story. How about the death, circumstance death? The sages were honored at their death. Buddhist, Buddhism, his disciples were so caring and the body was wrapped in 1,000 layers of Banaras uh, cloth. Banaras is today called Varanasi. That town is very famous for silk. Very fine silk. You've seen some of the Indian ladies wear their saris. About six to eight meet, uh, yards long. One and a half yards wide. 
Banaras or Varanasi was known in those days for, for knitting or for weaving such fine silk that you could take one of those saris and fold it up and put it in a matchbox. So fine. And when you wrapped a body with 1,000 layers, it means you have given that body the highest honor that you can possibly give. That's the meaning of that word. Same thing with Islam. When Muhammad died, Umar, the next caliph, or the, one of the later caliphs, he said, I was dumbfounded, I fell to the ground. And the people hurried, ashen-faced the mosque. Everywhere you could see women crying, slapping their chests and their faces, weeping and crying. Why? Because a great leader had gone. And they were going to show the highest form of respect that they possibly could. Judaism, Moses was 120 years old when he died and the children of Israel wept for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days. 30 days. Official state mourning. All flags half-mast. Nobody goes to your offices. Everything has a standstill. Why? Leader has died in office. And we are going to give him the highest respect as a nation. Stop. That's what we do when we want to give respect, admiration. This man, look at how he died. Crucified. Boy. With who? With a bunch of criminals. Not only that, hey, he was dying with criminals, fine, but was he a criminal? Sounded like it. Look at this next one. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the ending of this life, my friends. Crucified with criminals and saying, God has forsaken me. How much worse can an ending be? Why do you think the Jewish priests wanted him to be hung on the cross? You know what the actual... Punishment for blasphemy is, it's stoning. So why did they want that? Why, why wouldn't they tell him, let's stone him to death? No, they said crucify him, they stuck to it, crucify him. Because in their own Torah, it says that if anybody is hung for capital punishment, that will be the final evidence that he was cursed of God. You shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now you know why they desperately wanted him hung. That would be the final evidence to everyone. We were right, he was bad. Look at who cursed him, God. He was condemned and sentenced to his death by the highest religious authority. Sanhedrin. But the highest civil and judicial authority in the world, Rome. But the highest authority in the universe, God. What could be worse than that? The worst start in life, the shortest period of ministry, and the worst ending. Are you with me? He was the worst. I found three in which he really was the worst. The questions come up very strongly when you come up to this point. If he was just a criminal, why centuries year, uh, later did some of the finest artists and sculptors in the world 
make masterpieces of some of his teachings and hang them up in some of the most prestigious museums of the world where they're so captivated by this criminal? Why did some of the great leaders who set up institutions of learning start out by naming their institutions after him? Look, if you had a hundred million bucks and you wanted to start a university, you go looking around for a criminal's name to put in the central buildings. But that's what they did. Don't you think it's a question? As an inquirer? Yeah, he died like that, but then how come he's here? If he really was that kind of a criminal, how come people run after him so much 2000 years later? You know the group that is called by his name responds the fastest and with the greatest self-sacrifice in any natural calamity or disaster on earth. That's the group that runs there first. Is that a question? So this criminal was so captivating that they would do that? If he was only a criminal, then who made his name to split Western civilized history into two, B.C., A.D. Every time you write a check, you have to date it. If you don't date your check, it'll be worthless, right? You have to write a date. Do you know what that date is? That date relates to the birth of this criminal. Nobody has escaped it. So naturally my question was, heck, there has to be more. There is something more. And so my tenth question, I'm not counting them, but that's with us because I'm skipping some. My tenth question was, what happened after death? In Hinduism, there was cremation, mourning, scattering of the ashes over and into the river Ganga. When it came to Buddhism, for some days they worshipped the relics, that is his followers, and then they handed, divided the relics into eight parts, handed them over, and they took, the seven kings took seven parts, and they erected in their capital cities stupas or memorial mounds for them. In other words, and once that was done, the others took over. In Islam, Abu Bakr was the next leader, and then Umar, and Uthman, and finally Ali. In other words, Muhammad died. So what happened after Muhammad died? The others took over and the movement carried on. Judaism, so Moses, servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. And after the death of Moses, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Same thing. Moses, you died. Joshua, you come up and take over. When it came to Christianity, hey, he's still there. Lo, I am with you. I am he who lives and was dead. Boy, that's another something else. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a physician. I, for 10 years I worked in the emergency room. You see these lights and these sirens with these ambulances coming in. And then we all rush to work and you know, try to work it out and stabilize them. And if you can treat them, right there, treat them. Otherwise, send them to the trauma hospital some ways away. 
Sometimes they would come, they would phone and say, we can't get a pulse. Okay, keep doing CPR. Keep it. Give this and give that, adrenaline and this. And then sometimes when they come driving in and they bring the gurney, the stretcher, I go and examine and I have to tell the, pair, the family he was gone. Gone before he came. You know, I have never once ever told them he is gone now, but you know, in the morning come, he'll be walking the corridor here. Not once. Then don't ask me to swallow this story. I'm not going to swallow it. This guy was dead three days and you're saying he was alive? But once again, the dilemma. If it was a mythological writing, I would have swept it off the table without a care in the world. Out you go. But it is written in the best attested ancient piece of historical writing. I can't throw it out. I should not if I'm fair. I'm, I should be able to show that it did not happen. I cannot throw it out. Are you with me? If it's a historical piece of writing, no matter how unbelievable it is, I cannot throw it out like I would have thrown out a legendary piece of writing or a mythological piece of writing. And so I had no choice but to once again scrutinize it. As an inquirer. Now, the resurrection is a big thing all over the world. Some people sneer and laugh at it. Some people say, no, that's what really happened. That's my whole life. That's what I believe. The resurrection, the meaning of resurrection is a religious, doctrinal, philosophical question. No doubt. But whether the resurrection took place or not is not religious, it is not philosophical. It is plain historical. Did it take place or not? That's my question. Whether the resurrection of Jesus took place or not is a historical question. And so the question has to be decided on the level of historical argument. It's called legal historical argument, not scientific. Because scientific, scientific arguments are to do with repeatable tests. This is not repeatable, it happened only once. So you do a legal historical. Why are we so interested in this? Because it was a big claim that they made, the disciples. So it is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. There's nothing in between. So when I looked at that, I said, boy, 2,000 years ago, how will I figure it out today? I mean, some kings have only two lines to their names, right? How do you know what happened? But look at the statement by Wilbur Smith. Let it be simply said that we know more about the details of the hours immediately before and the actual death of Jesus than we know about the death of any other one man in all the ancient world. Did you know that? We know more about the burial of the Lord Jesus than we know of the burial of any single character in all of ancient history. 
I said, wait a minute, man, if that's the case, then I can kind of look into that story and see if it's all one big hoax or are there marks of credibility there. Aristotle's dictum says that the benefit of the doubt should be given to the document and not ar arrogated by the critic. Why? Because you were not there. You can't criticize what somebody says when you are not there. You can't say, first I will describe and treat it as false and then we'll see what happens. No, you must give it its due. One must listen to the claims of the document under analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself. So here's the question. If the story is said to be unbelievable, which it is, what could the correct story be? So why is the story unbelievable? Because it rankles my sense of reasoning. That's why it's unbelievable. So any correction that we make to make it a believable story should fit in with the rest of the story. It should not strain our sense of reasoning. Are you with me? Don't give me another story which has equally a difficult time reasoning, in reasoning. So, what are the alternatives proposed? One, he did not die, he only fainted. It's called the swoon theory. There was severe blood loss, blood pressure went down, fainted, took him down from the cross, put him in the tomb, and in the cool, reviving atmosphere in the tomb, he was revived. Number two, he died, but he did not rise. His disciples stole the body. So here are the two, actually there are about 10 or 11 alternatives. I have boiled them into these two main ones. He did not die. Let's look at these five points. If you say he did not die, then you have to kind of explain what is there or not there. Number one, Pilate. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. You know what happened? He was crucified and then some friends of Jesus came to Pilate and said, we want his body because we want to bury it. And Pilate looked and the record says he marveled. Why would Pilate marvel or is the author just trying to twist the story so that we would think that he, you know, it was just made up story? No. Pilate would definitely have cause for marvel because crucifixion, which was invented basically by the Romans to have the most cruel form of death, in crucifixion, a person died of suffocation and you would hang there for an, for an average of three days. We have on record those who have hung there for one full week before dying. So in eight hours, naturally Pilate was amazed. He said, hey, did he die so quickly? No, sir, I can't give this body because it will be a big shame to the whole Roman Empire. You couldn't put a bitty little carpenter to death. So, this is what he said. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So, when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So, Pilate also had the same question as us. Did he really die? So, we know that at least somebody else was questioning that. 
because normally they die after three days, here in eight hours he's dead. How did the centurion report back to Pilate to say he was dead? Here's the story. When they came to the soldiers, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, meaning he was not moving at all, they did not break his legs because the others were squirming around and writhing in, so they had to be killed and so they broke their legs to make the suffocation quicker and so they would die. This person looks very still and it doesn't look like he's really alive, so shall we bring him down or not? What if he's not dead? And so the centurion made sure he was dead. How? He called the soldier. Bring your spear. One thrust. That is the reason the spear was thrust. To make sure he was dead because Pilate says he wants him to be dead before they bring him down. We don't know whether he is dead. We're going to make sure he is dead. And so soldier, whack once. Trained soldier, just one chance. And all scholars who have looked at it said if he had not died of crucifixion, he would have died of that spear thrust. Because that was what he was meant to do. Alright, so Pilate was asking for it. The centurion wanted to make sure. And then John, the writer, says this. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Oh, that's something which is a clear description, right? Somebody is seeing two streams coming out. Naturally, <clears throat> I looked for physiological reasoning. How would you have two streams coming out? There is there are two explanations. I'll give you at least one of them. Number one is the known historical fact that a person undergoing, undergoing severe grief and stress can rupture his heart muscle. So the actual story is not the story of the cross. The cross didn't kill him. He died of a ruptured heart muscle under severe grief and stress. And if the muscle ruptures, then there is a bag that the heart is enveloped in called the pericardium. Then when the muscle ruptures, the heart will, the blood will come and collect in the pericardial sac. And the pericardial sac itself has pericardial fluid. And when you mix those two, you can partially clot blood. And the clotted part will come down and leave the upper part clear which is known as the serum. If the spear had thrust at the junction, you could have possibly two streams. But for it to occur, the blood has to stop circulating. And it has to stop circulating for enough time for the clotting of blood to occur so it separates out into two parts, the red part and the serum. Can you see the first question that Pilate asked, has he been dead for some time? And that's how the centurion 
and today we as physicians can say hey he was dead for some time you will not get a parting of those two fluids unless it is still if blood is flowing it will never separate out only when it is still and in conjunction with another fluid will it separate out like this so he was dead for some time according to the two streams the next is if he really didn't die and he got up how did he get out of the tomb he was bound like this so what is the mechanism he used to unbind himself no answer how did he find out the door of the tomb in the darkness of the tomb no answer how did he identify the seal which was on the outside and break it while he was on the inside how did he roll away the stone the the tombstone when his hands were pierced he might have been able to do with his shoulder pushing it if his feet were okay but his feet also were pierced there was no way he could have pushed that stone which is called golel in the greek in in mark golel is a stone that requires multiple people to push and move and he alone dehydrated fainting pierced hand and feet back just lacerated a spear in his side and we are saying that this giant of a guy was moving that stone it doesn't make much sense and then when he and he did it without making a single sound so that none of the gods were were alerted to it and then he stepped over and hobbled away nobody chased him at all can you see how unreal this story will be the fifth point is how many people thought he was dead well pilot because he made sure so the centurion the soldier these were all enemies of jesus what about his own friends did his own friends think that he was dead yes they thought he was dead do you how do you know how i know because they brought embalming material nobody embalms a body that is alive because the embalming material will kill if you're alive so the friends of jesus thought he was dead the enemies of jesus thought he was dead why are we saying he was not dead so taking all five into consideration he was dead as far as reasoning goes well how about the body being stolen there are again five points the disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept this was the story that the gods came and stated and it's there in the record that this is their report the disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept that sentence itself tells you it is false why because you cannot be awake and asleep at the same time <laughs> you if you are asleep you cannot say it was the disciples and if you were awake why did you let them steal because you were put there for that specific purpose so that sentence it tells to tells you that is internally inconsistent you cannot claim the truth of the matter while you are asleep
So, that's number one. Point two, well, the story describes that when they came, some of the clothes were folded together in a place by itself. Really? When did you hear of thieves folding clothes? So they came to your house and they wanted to steal your diamond ring and they saw the clothes all unfolded and thrown in and they folded your clothes? No. Thieves don't fold clothes. They throw them helter-skelter because they're looking for their prize. Is that clear? Yeah, it's reasonable. I'm just being an, an inquirer. Thieves don't fold clothes. The scene of a theft is not orderliness. It is disorderliness. The third one point is, if they found all the clothes inside there, then you and I will have to honestly deduce that those disciples carried away a body that was naked. What reason can you and I give for that? Carry away your beloved master? Look, why, do you know why... Have you seen this, uh, the, the pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross? Halo around his head, right? And what's around his middle? A loincloth. Do you know that loincloth is only an artist's addition? Those who were crucified in the days of the Roman Empire were crucified stark naked. Why? Because the person was such a vile criminal that they were going to peel away every last vestige of dignity, strip him completely naked and hang him up there. Never again will that family ever raise their heads in public. Shamed. Completely shamed to the utter end. And then you are telling me that his beloved disciples came and shamed him again by unwrapping the thing and taking out a dead body? No, sir. That's a psychological hurdle I cannot cross. The third one is, they, the body was wrapped. If you were going to steal, pick it and run. <laughs> Don't sit there unwrapping it. Can you see that it does not make sense? It's not just the question of humor. It's, it's just question doesn't make good sense. If you and I were really called upon to go steal, man, it was just placed right for you. Pick it and bolt. The fourth one is, how shall we explain the disciples getting into the tomb? We couldn't explain how Jesus could have got out. The same problem, how could the disciples have got in to steal the body? It's unreasonable. And fifth, the last one, the disciples had no motive for stealing the body. Oh, we can say, oh, they, they later on they would say that he was risen again. Really? But they didn't have that story if they really had that story, then do you think any of them would have run away from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh no. Do you think Peter would have denied him when a maiden came to him and said, you are from with Jesus? 
if really they had planned to do this, then the other picture would have been far more realistic. When this maiden came to Peter and said, you, you with this guy, he would have called her aside and said, I, come here, I've got to tell you something. See, spat upon, beaten, slapped, tortured, but wait till Sunday morning. I'll show you who he really is. Right? Yeah, why would he run away and deny him? So none of these five points stick. So taking all five points into consideration, the body was not stolen. So, if the, they had no motive for stealing. But now we come to the other side. If the story is true, what evidence do we have? But like I said, it has to be historical legal evidence, okay? What evidence do we have? There are three. The after effects, the eyewitnesses and the dying declaration or deathbed confession. After effects, the changes in the disciples and the fact of the Christian church. The changes in the disciples. Perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. A little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence. How do you explain that? Something happened, right? They were willing to face arrest, imprisonment, beatings and horrible deaths. Not one of them recanted of his belief that Christ had risen. Think of the psychological absurdity of attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world that simply wouldn't make sense. Why wouldn't it make sense? Consider yourself as one of the disciples. Let's say we are the disciples and let's say I am your leader and I am saying, friends, Jesus died. Our master is gone. We buried him in Peter's backyard. That you and I know. But we've got to fool the world. We've got to tell all of them that he actually rose up from the dead. Are you ready? Okay, 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 I am not sure, but mm, okay. Yeah, we've got to tell the world that he rose up from the dead. But the priests, they are mad with him. If you say he rose up there, what will they do to you? What will they do to all of us? Nothing, they'll just slap you, that's all. They'll just beat you up. Huh? But you've got to still keep on saying that he rose up from the dead. Then, then what will they do? They'll, they'll clap you in jail, torture you, and we've got to still keep on saying he rose up from the dead? Yes, keep on saying that. Then what will happen at the end? They'll kill you, that's all, nothing great. So, what's in it for us? What's in it for us if we keep on saying that he rose up from the dead? Nothing for you, just go die. And all of us, 12 of us, hold our hands together and we look at each other and we say, yippee, let's tell the whole world what a fantastic program we have. We're going to die. Doesn't make sense really. It does not. It is absurd to say that a person was dying 
for just nothing at all. In other words, they knew where that body was buried in Peter's backyard and they stood six weeks later in the middle of Jerusalem and called that bag of rotting flesh and broken bones as the Prince of Life. And 3,000 hard-nosed Jews dropped their lifelong belief and solid faith, thrown it aside and decided for this man. Explain it. You cannot explain that. You can't sell a lie so strongly, my friends. So, the change in the disciples. How about the presence of the Christian church? You know, when Judas had gone away, there were 11 and they wanted the 12. Because the master had 12, we also need 12. So, we need to choose the 12th. And these are the criteria that they had in choosing the 12th. Therefore, of all these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become witness us, uh, with us of his resurrection. There was, were two criteria. The person whom we are going to choose to fill Judas' place would have to have been with us all the time. Criteria number one. Criteria number two, that person should be a witness of his resurrection. Don't tell me about his miracles. Don't tell me about his teachings. Don't tell me about what he was like. You should be able to witness to his resurrection. You should have seen him before. You should have seen him die. You should have seen him after he was resurrected. Then you join this club. If you want to talk about his teaching, you join that club. If you want to talk about his other miracles, you join that club. If you want to join this club, you've got to have two criteria. You should have been with us all the time. And number two, you should be able to witness with your life on his resurrection. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of resurrection. Once you disprove it, you can dispose of Christianity. So the resurrection gave significance to all that they did. The institution of the church then is a historical phenomenon. Yes, it is. It is still in existence today, the Christian church. You take it back. You cannot take it back unless you recognize something happened between the seventh day and the first day of that weekend. You will never be able to explain the Christian church. The second point is eyewitnesses. Here's another real decider regarding the writings of the New Testament and of any other ancient writing. This is the only religious writing in which eyewitnesses wrote. There is no other religious writing in the world Every other religious writing is what somebody said. This is the only writing where somebody said, I saw it for myself. Nobody saw Gautama Buddha being enlightened under the ficus tree that night. Nobody ever saw Muhammad on Mount Hira getting his revelations from the angel Gabriel. This was eyewitnessed. 
those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses, eyewitness of his majesty. He who has seen has testified. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. We're not talking about a, a dream. We're not talking about an imagination. We're talking about something that I saw, I felt, I saw him. Hey, what more do you need? The very kind of evidence that modern science and even psychologists are so insistent upon for determining the reality of any object under consideration is the kind of evidence we have presented to us in the Gospels regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, namely the things that are seen with the human eye, touched with the human hand and heard by the human ear. This is what we call empirical evidence. What more does anyone want? It is written down by people who saw. Look, one of the highest forms of evidence today in a court of law is an eyewitness's sworn affidavit. This is it. The next is deathbed confessions. Why are deathbed confessions taken to be serious in a court of law? Because when you reach the end and really facing the specter of death, usually you tell the truth. Even hardened criminals are known to soften up and break down and say, okay, okay, I'll tell you. I've got nothing to lose now. I'm going to die. So let's say one of them we realize is going to die. And we go with our attorney to his side and we say, hey, 20 years ago, in that room, you were there. Tell us what happened. And he says, okay, I'm going to die. Let me finally tell you. Mr. Brown came in. He opened the drawer. All the money was in a white envelope. He took it and walked out. So Mr. Brown took all the money. And then 10 minutes later, he's gone. That was his deathbed confession. You write it down. You can take it to a court of law, you know. I can say I got a deathbed confession. Here it is. It will be strong evidence, but it will be even stronger if this guy says, Mr. So-and-so was also there. And you run to him, he's also on his deathbed. And you say, can you tell us what happened 20 years ago? And he says, well, okay, 20 years, I kept my trap shut. Now I'm about to die, let me tell you the truth. Mr. Brown came. He walked over to the drawer, pulled it open. There was a white envelope in which all the money was kept. He took the money and walked out. Two. Two deathbed confessions will seal the matter. If you have three, there is not a jury or judge in the world that will overturn three Deathbed confessions. We have not three, more than twelve. Sorry. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned to death. Matthew was killed by the sword. James was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. Bartholomew was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. And Paul was beheaded. And not a single one ever turned around and said, I'll tell you the truth. We hid his body. Let me go home. They were not killed at one swipe. 
They were quilled once, this guy, and then three months later, that guy, and a year later, that guy. You had ample opportunity to rethink your stand. Are you going to tell the truth and go home or die like those guys out there? Every one of them stuck till the end. We'll slap you. He rose. We'll beat you up. He rose. We'll torture you. Hey, I saw him before and I saw him after. He rose. We'll kill you. Okay. You're going to kill me because I'm not going to change my word. Because I saw him. I handled him. I ate with him. But before you kill me, can I tell you something? You're going to kill me, I can see. Spear is coming. Got to get beheaded. Maybe sometime later, when you think about how you have killed me, your conscience might bother you. It will burn. I'd like to tell you something about that time. When it's burning the most, please go to the man called Jesus. He will forgive you. And when he has forgiven you, you and I will meet in his kingdom. Go ahead. Chat, chat, all twelve. None of them went back. Not a single one of them. How easy, my friends, think how easy if it was really a hoax to tell them, wait a minute, don't kill me. I'll tell you the truth. Let me go home. My family and children are waiting there. Indeed, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus. By all rules of evidence, not philosophy, not imagination, but rules of evidence, his bodily resurrection or from the grave can be adjudged the best proved fact of all ancient history. On that greatest point, we are not merely asked to, asked to have faith. In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Who said those words? Lord Darling, the Chief Justice of a whole nation. Don't you think he knows something about the weight of evidence? When he says that, and he calls it overwhelming overwhelming evidence. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up a most important case. I have myself done it many times over not to persuade others but to satisfy myself and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Arnold Toynbee wrote a large companion of my history. He devoted 80 pages to anyone who was called savior. 
Savior of the nation, Savior of your community, Savior of your friends, Savior of your family. If you called yourself a Savior and came out in writing, he studied you. This is what he said at the end of his study. When we set out on this quest, we found ourselves moving in the midst of a mighty marching host. In the last stage of all, our motley host of would-be saviors, human and divine, has dwindled to a single company of none but gods. At the final ordeal of death, few even of these would-be savior gods have dared to put their title to the test by plunging into the icy river, meaning plunging into the icy river of death. And now as we stand and gaze with our eyes fixed upon the farther shore, meaning what happened after death, a single figure rises from the flood and straightway fills the whole horizon. There is the Savior. The bones of Abraham and Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and Lao Tzu and Zoroaster are still here on earth. Jesus' tomb is empty. It is a concrete, factual, empirical proof that life has hope and meaning. Love is stronger than death. Goodness and power are ultimately allies, not enemies. Life and not death wins in the end. God has touched us right here where we are and has defeated our last enemy. We are not cosmic orphans. Summary. I haven't gone through all ten, but we're going to go through quickly all ten of the summary of what I usually present when I go out on these seminars. The summary of the conclusions, the New Testament is the best documented ancient writing in the world. It is solidly historical in nature. The top feature of writing is beyond human capability. We didn't see that. Number two, number three, only the Bible's challenge is open and clear and it fulfills its own challenge impressively, which is predictive prophecy. Number four, Jesus dared to make the highest claim he was a son of God. Jesus did not just bring the truth, the way of life he was. We didn't see this, but that's one of the uh, uh, subsections. Number six, Jesus is the only one in whom the theory of teaching was matched by actual practice in life, and therefore the only one with the right to say, follow me. Jesus' ministry was the shortest, and it yet it had the greatest impact. He was the only founder to be born illegitimate, the only founder to die the shameful death of a condemned criminal. And yet, number ten, the only one to go into the domain of death, the most feared enemy of humankind, break those bands and compare as a conqueror over death. Ten solid points that you can check and you can weigh out. And therefore my final conclusion is that the Bible and Jesus are matchless in their claims. They have the highest credibility and therefore they provide to mankind the only way. With that, I close my presentation. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.